Section two of Life and Sayings of Mrs. Partington. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Deborah Lynn. Life and Sayings of Mrs. Partington and Others of the Family by B. P. Shillaber. Section two. Mild weather. This is grand weather, mem, for poor people, said Mr. Tigg, the rich neighbor of Mrs. Partington, on a very warm day of winter, and indulged in a half chuckle about it as he rubbed his hands together. It is a remark that almost everybody would make, and mean it, too, at a time when coal, by the rapacity of man, was eight or nine dollars a ton, and cold weather, by the blessing of heaven, that tempers the wind to the shorn lambs and ragged children, was withheld. But not Mrs. Partington. Yes, said she, gently laying her hand, at the same time, on the sleeve of Mr. Tigg's coat, and looking him in the face. "'Yes, and don't folks use this good weather too much "'as an excuse for not helping the indignant widows and orphanless children? "'Depend upon it. "'Cold weather is the best for the poor, "'for then the rich feel the cold and think more of them, "'and feel more exposed to give them consolation in coal. "'Cold weather comes down from heaven a purpose "'to make men feel their duty, "'and it touches the heart as the frost touches the milk-pitcher "'and breaks it.' and the milk of humane kindness runs out, and the poor are made better for it. Cold weather is a blessing to the poor, depend upon it. She stopped here, and Mr. Tigg cast his eyes down, and struck his cane several times against the brick at his feet. Then, bidding the old lady good morning, he moved away. There was a large doctor to sundries on his book that night, which the bookkeeper will find it difficult to explain, but heaven knows all about it and the secret gift in charity, and the prayer of the poor recipient, invoking blessings on the unknown benefactor, were great records that night in the angel's book. The China Question You never see such chaining nowhere now as this, said Mrs. Partington, as she took from an obscure corner of the old cupboard a teapot of antique appearance, noseless and handleless, and cracked here and there, and stayed with putty where time's mischievous fingers had threatened a dissolution of the Union. "'That teapot was my grandmother's afore she was married. "'I remember it just as well as it was yesterday.' "'Remember when your grandmother was married?' queried Ike. "'No, no, the teapot,' responded she. "'And it was a perfect beauty, with the Garden of Eden on it, "'and the flowers and Adam and Eve on it, "'so natural that you might almost smell their fragrance.' "'What? Smell Adam and Eve?' said Ike. "'No, the flowers, stupid,' replied she. My granther gave it to her as a memento mori of his undying infection, because the colors wouldn't fade, and they never have, though children are destroying angels, and they made the mischief among the crockery, as they always do nowadays. She had held the teapot in her hands as she spoke, and now she gazed in silence upon the picture of Adam and Eve, partially concealed in the bushes, and she reveled in the memory of the past, and wondered if her grandmother ever came back to look at that old teapot, that she had preserved so carefully as an heirloom. Then, carefully brushing off some dust that rested upon it, she replaced it, and charged Ike impressively to keep it most sacrilegiously for her sake. He said he would, as plain as his mouth full of preserved plums would let him, and wiped his mouth on the sleeve of his best jacket. Sympathy. "'Here's fresh halibut!' cried the fish-vendor, beneath Mrs. Partington's window. "'I know it is, you poor creeter,' said the estimable lady, looking after him with a commiserating expression. "'I know it is, and I believe it is the seventh fresh haul about that he has made by here to-day, 
and he speaks so pitiful, too, when he is telling us of it, it makes my very heart ache for him. She caught not the deep significance of the cry, but her benevolence, always on the alert, construed it into an appeal for sympathy. Heaven's blessings on thee, Mrs. Partington, and, with reverence, be it wished, where hearts are regarded, may you turn up a trump. Paul's Ghost It was just in the nigh edge of a summer evening, and Mrs. Partington, who had worked hard at her knitting all day, began to feel a little dozy. She felt, as she described it to her neighbour, Mrs. Battlegash, a sort of all-overness. And those who have felt as she thus described it will know the precise sensation, for ourselves, never having felt so, we cannot explain it. It was a sort of half-twilight, when the daylight begins to be thick and muddy, and a time when ghosts are said to be round fully as plenty as at the classic hour of midnight. We never could see the propriety of restricting ghostly operations to this sombre hour, and as far as our experience goes, we have seen as many ghosts at noon of day as at the noon of night. She never told us why or if she were thinking of ghosts at this time. Indeed, all we know about the ghost was from Mrs. Battlegash, and we shall have to give the narration as we had it under Mrs. B.'s own hand. Says Mrs. Partington, says she, Mrs. Battle, she always calls me Battle, though my name is Battlegash, my husband's name it is father's, says she, Mrs. Battle, I've seen an apprehension. And I thought she was a-going to have an asterisk. She was so very pale and haggard-like, and says I, what's the matter? For I felt kind of scared. I had heard a good deal about the spirituous manifestations, and didn't know but they had been a-manifesting her. Says I, what's the matter, again? And then, says she, as solemn as a graveyard, I've seen Paul. I felt cold chills a-crawling all over me, but I mustered courage enough to say, Do tell. Yes, says she, I saw him with my mortal eyes, just as he looked when he was a tenement of clay, with the very soldier clothes and impertinences he had on the last day he sarved his country in the auxiliary. I tried to comfort the poor creature by telling her that I guessed he didn't care enough about her to want to come back, and as his estate had all been settled sacrilegiously, it would be very unreasonable indeed in him to come back to disturb her. "'Where did you see him?' says I. "'Out into the yard,' said she. "'When did you see him?' says I. "'Just now,' said she. "'Are you sure it was he?' said I, determined to get at the bottom of it. "'Yes,' said she. "'If ever an apprehension did come back, that air was one. "'Perhaps it is there now.' "'Then,' says I, "'Ruth,' says I, "'let's go and see.' She riz right up, and we walked along through the long entry into her room, and looked out of her back window, and there, sure enough, was a sight as froze my blood to calves foot jelly. There was the soldier cap and coat, as natural as life with a tompy and a top. My heart come up into my mouth, so that I could have spit it out just as easy as not. Mrs. Partington, says she, what do you think of it? Isn't it his apprehension? But I'm determined to speak to it. I tried to persuade her not to, but she insisted on it, and out she went. "'Paul,' said she, "'what upon earth do you want "'that you should come back arter it so apprehensively?' "'The figure was setting on the top of the pump when she spoke, "'and it didn't take no notice of her. "'Paul,' said she, a little louder, "'then slowly and solemnly that air cap turned round, "'and instead of Paul, Mr. Editor, if you'll believe it, "'it was Ike, the little scapegrace, "'that had frightened us almost out of our wits, "'if we ever had any. "'That boy, I believe, will be the means of somebody's death.' Mrs. Partington grew very red in the face, 
and raised her hand to inflict corporal punishment on to the young corporal, but the boy looked up kind of pleasantly like, and she couldn't find the heart to strike him, though I told her if she spared the rod she would spile that air child. It is fortnight for him that he isn't a child of mine, I can tell him. Here Mrs. Battlegash's narrative ends. We can fancy the scene in the yard, the youngster in the corporal's coat, the red face changing to pleasant equanimity, the raised hand indicative of temper subsiding as the waves do when the wind ceases to blow, and peace like the evening star above them pervading and giving grace to the tableau. Ike so tender-hearted. "'There, don't take on so, dear,' said Mrs. Partington, as she handed Ike a peach he had been crying for. He took the peach, and a minute afterwards was heard whistling Jordan on the ridge-pole of the shed. "'He is such a tender-hearted critter,' said she to Mrs. Sled, smilingly, while that excellent neighbour looked at him through the window with two deprecatory eyes. "'He is so tender-hearted that I can't ask him to go out and draw an armful of wood or split a pail of water without setting him crying at once.' She paused for Mrs. Sled's mind to comprehend the whole force of the remark concerning Ike's lachrymosity. "'And he's the most considerable boy, too,' resumed she, "'that ever you see. For when we had the inclination on the lungs, he wouldn't take a bit of the medicine Dr. Bolus had subscribed, cause he knowed it would do me good, and said he'd full as leaves take molasses.' She went on with her knitting, and Ike became lost in the foot of a stocking that she was towing out. Those grapes on the trellis opposite, where Ike is sitting, look tempting. Mrs. Partington says there must be some sort of kin between poets and pullets, for they both are always chanting their lays. Look up. Perhaps it would not make a rap's difference one way or the other in a man's fortunes, whether he looked up or down, but we always fancied that there was a reason for the superstition that made a man's habit of looking down an augury of his success in life, as if his mind, dwelling with his eyes continually on the earth, would better enable him to know how to make money, as a man who dwells in the dark can see better in the accustomed darkness than one who comes directly in from the light. He keeps his eyes on the ground, and no stray fourpences or cents escape his eagle vision. Every rag is marked to see if it may not be a bill in disguise, and the hope to find a pocket-book or two while passing along the street seems to be continually present in his mind. His eyes grow heavy with looking down, and when at last there is no longer occasion to look down, when he has found all the fourpences and pocket-books that he has sought for, then the light is painful to him, and he turns to the earth again before he is dead. Habit makes it his only happiness, and he goes to seeking for pocket-books and fourpences again. If this be the result of looking down, the result of looking up must be, we should suppose, the opposite of this. Lifting the eyes above the world brings one to view things far better than fourpences. As much difference between them as the difference between a star of the first magnitude and a gold dollar. The eyelids turned up, the sunlight streams down upon the mind, and prepares therein a soil for the reception of good seed that shall grow up and bear fruit. Look up! Whoever thinks of groping about the foundations of Bunker Hill Monument when there are so many pleasures of vision to be gained by climbing to its summit? The higher the look or climb, the broader the view from the lofty position one gains. The most beautiful and delicate work of a structure is placed at the top. The fruit that is sweetest is always the nearest the sun. These are facts that belong to everyday life, to say nothing of that spiritual looking up required to give light to the soul, 
a commodity which some few people possess and seem desirous of benefiting. But don't, in looking up, lose all memory of earth, for you can't drop your body as you can your coat with your wish and soar off on the wings of the spirit. When you look up, keep part of an eye directed to earth and avoid the coal-holes and cellarways that are open for your unwary feet. A too deep absorption in things above the earth may make the stargazer conscious of a pain in the back from a too sudden contact with the cold, cold ground, as we saw a printer served on a cold morning, though whether he was heaven-seeking is questionable, and who looked very simple as he gathered himself up after the prostration. Let the upward look characterize us all, with the eye to accidents mentioned above, and secure for us a name for aspiring above the groveling things of the world, and five of us out of six may be deserving of it. Look up. A solemn fact. Your plants are most flagrantly odious, said Mrs. Partington, as she stooped over a small oval red table in a neighbor's house, which table was covered with cracked pots, filled with luxuriant geraniums, and a monthly rose, and a cactus, and other bright creations that shed their sweetness upon the almost tropical atmosphere of a southerly room in April, while a fragrant vine hung in chains, graced the window with a curtain more gorgeous than any other not exactly like it. Mrs. Partington stood gazing upon them in admiration. "'How beautiful they are!' she continued. "'Do you profligate your plants by slips, mem?' She was told that such was the case. They were propagated by slips. "'So was mine,' said Mrs. P. "'I was always more lucky with my slips than with anything else.' "'Bless the kind old heart, Mrs. Partington. It may be so with you, but it is not so with all. For the way of the world is hard, and many slips are made, and for the unfortunates whose feet or tongues slip on the treacherous path, a sentence generally awaits which admits small chance of reversal, a soiled coat or a soiled character sticking to them until both are worn out. Dear old lady, your humble chronicler remembers that many of the young and beautiful are profligated by slips, slips so gradual that propriety could hardly call them such at first, which end heaven and earth and perdition know how deep. New Remedy for a Drought Mrs. Partington was in the country one August, and for a whole month not one drop of rain had fallen. One day she was slowly walking along the road, with her umbrella over her head, when an old man, who was mending up a little gap of wall, accosted her, at the same time depositing a large stone on the top of the pile. "'Mrs. Partington, what do you think can help this ere drought?' The old lady looked at him through her spectacles, at the same time smelling a fern-leaf. "'I think,' said she, in a tone of oracular wisdom, "'I think a little rain would help it as much as anything.' It was a great thought. The old gentleman took off his straw hat and wiped his head with his cotton handkerchief, at the same time saying that he thought so too. Hear that voice. Did the reader ever know a man grown and big at that, with a very small voice that almost squealed in uttering itself, and gave a most ridiculous aspect to what was perhaps of great importance, as matters of life and death, the reading of a will, an exhortation to virtue, or an anxious inquiry concerning the health of friends. Of course he has, for there are many such voices about. An agent of a large manufacturing establishment in New Hampshire possessed this peculiarity of voice to a remarkable degree, which once was the cause of a most mortifying and ludicrous mistake. A man came to the factory to get employment. A great burly fellow with a voice like young thunder, 
and saluted the agent, who was a small man, by the way, with the question, "'Do you want to hire?' in a tone that seemed to shake the room in which they stood. Starting at the sound, and with a face expressive of nervous irritability, he drawled out in his squeaking, querulous manner, as if looking at each word before he uttered it, "'No, I don't know as I do.' The man, not understanding his peculiarity, attributed the strange tones to another cause, and kindly extending his huge hand, as one might suppose a friendly bear would under like circumstances, patted the little agent on the head, and soothingly uttered, "'Well, well, my little fellow, don't cry about it. Don't take on so if you can't hire me.' The contact of crude humanity with his delicate head operated as magically upon the agent as did the touch of Captain Cuddle's hook upon the refined flesh of Dombey, and frightful was the yell with which he met the mechanic's sympathy in a command to leave the room, and awfully vehement was the manner in which he slammed the door to as the good-humoured fellow passed into the street. Mrs. Partington penned. A friend returned from a visit to New York, presented to Mrs. Partington a gold pen which had been entrusted to him for her. The present was duly examined and admired, and turned round and pulled out, and held up to the light, and the receipt for pew-rent was brought out from the black bureau on the back of which to test its quality, and she made a straight mark to the right, and then crossed it with another straight mark of equal length, and then said it was charming. "'But who are they?' said she, speculatively. "'I don't know them, I'm sure.' The friend blandly explained that they knew her very well, and that this present was a tribute of regard for her many virtues, which, like the odour of ten thousand flowers, is borne across the entire land. The giver was eloquent, touching. Ah, said she, it is very kind to remember a poor widowless body like me. What friends I have got! I hope that heaven will be rewarded for their kindness to me. It was a fervent aspiration, and though the letter of her prayer might seem to divert the reward from its true object, still its spirit conferred it rightly. She opened the old black bureau desk in the corner, and placed the gold pen carefully by the side of the paste shoe-buckles and hoop earrings, valuable relics of bygone times, and then securely locked the desk as she saw Ike looking curiously into the window, with his nose flattened close against the glass. THE SODA FOUNTAIN "'There it goes again,' said Mrs. Partington, as she became conscious of the sublimity of a soda fountain one warm day. "'There it goes again, I declare, fizzing away like a blessed old locomo on the railroad. Don't say anything about Nigeri now. That isn't nothing in comparison to this, and it ain't a bad beer, nother. But how in nature they can draw so many kinds out of one faucet, that's the wonderment to me.' and she readjusted her specs and took a new survey of the mystery, while Ike, unwatched, was weighing his knife and five jackstones in the bright brass scale on the other counter. Giving Reasons The various reasons which some folks always have ready for their accidents and misfortunes, or as palliatives for their faults and follies, are very amusing. Many stories are told of such. One, we remember, of a boy who had played truant, and gave, as the reason for his absence, that his father kept him at home to help grind the handsaw. A toper, accounting for a bad cold he had, said he had slept on the common and forgot to shut the gate. Another stoker, who was found in the gutter with the water making a free passage over him, 
when asked how he came there, replied that he had agreed to meet a man there. In our printing office days, when we had to work for a living, it was our luck to work with a queer old fellow who bore the name of Smith or some such odd title. He was a very unhappy man, and never smiled unless he had the whole office in a snarl, and then he would chuckle right gladly. He was always fancying that his office-mates were imposing upon him, and a perfect flood of bile would he throw off at times for imagined wrongs. His position was by a window, fronting the east, and over this window he claimed absolute dominion to shut it up or have it open as he just pleased, maugre the fretting of those who were annoyed by his obstinacy. He assumed the office of a thermometer for the men, and graduated the heat according to his own feelings. If the wind was east, he would as surely have the window open as that he would have it shut if it blew pleasantly from the west. One day, with the wind blew east, the window was open all day, and much audible complaint was made by all hands, but without any effect. It was with a feeling nearly akin to exultation they saw him enter the office next day, with indubitable signs of having a cold upon him. His nose looked red and raw, and his voice sounded as if he had two tight-fitting cork stoppers in his nostrils. The window that day was not opened, you may depend. One of the men undertook to remind him that his cold was in consequence of the wind blowing upon him. "'Go it ain't,' said Smith. "'But I hung my hat up by the winder, and last night, when I put it on, it was brimful of east wind.' A Small Trade "'Cold day, Mr. Smith,' said old Roger, in the dock square omnibus, to his neighbour, who assented very politely. "'And yet,' continued Roger, "'cold as it is, I have just seen a man in State Street who does not wear gloves.' "'Ah!' responded Smith, struck with the singularity of the statement. "'Why not, pray?' "'Why,' chuckled the old man, "'because he hasn't any hands.' Mr. Smith smiled. "'On locomotion.' "'So they've got you on the stage, Mrs. Partington,' said we to the old lady, after seeing her name on a theatre bill as one of the characters in a new burletta. "'On the stage,' replied she, and a gleam of memory passed over her face, like a ray of sunshine over a faded landscape, and she looked out of the window and down the street until her eye rested on an omnibus moving quickly along in the pride of paint and gold, and she took passage in it in fancy and went along with it. "'Yes,' said she. "'They did get me on the stage, "'because it caused a nonsense in my stomach to ride inside, "'and what a queer figure I did make on it, to be sure. "'But that, dear, was five-and-twenty years ago, "'and it is so queer they should remember it. "'Oh, them stages! "'I've heard of people riding by easy stages, "'but I never saw one. "'The easiest way that I ever rid was on a pillory behind Paul there. "'Easy stages, indeed!' Why, it shook me as if it would shake the sensuality all out of me, and I never got over it for a week. How different it is now! And she looked at the omnibus just passing her door. All you've to do is to get into an ominous, all cushioned nicely, with a whole picture gallery round it to see for nothing, and afore you know it, you are where you want to go. Stages! But it is the national stage, we said. Well, well, replied she hastily, tain't no difference. Only the national stage carried the mail, and t'other the female passengers. One was just as bad as t'other, and I don't know but worse. But they've got you in the theatre, the national theatre, we persisted, and showed her the bill. She looked at it a moment, and wiped her specks, 
and looked at it again in silence as if her mind hadn't got back from the hard journey it had just taken. At that moment a crash of glass called her hastily to the kitchen. The floor was covered with fragments of that brittle article, and a large ball hopped under a chair as if ashamed of itself, while Ike was seen through the broken window making tracks speedily for the shed. We left her picking up the glass so that he might not get it into his bare feet when he came in. Depend upon it, he had to take a severe talking to when she caught him. The largest liberty. Now go to meeting, dear, said Mrs. Partington, as Isaac stood smoothing his hair preparatory to going out on Sunday. He looked down at his new shoes, and a thought of the green fields made him sigh. A fishing line hung out of one pocket, which Mrs. Partington didn't see. "'Where shall I go to?' asked Ike. Since the old lady had given up her seat in the old North Church, she had no stated place of worship. "'Go,' replied she sublimely, as she pulled down his jacket behind. "'Go anywheres where the gospel is dispensed with.' Such liberality is rare. Bigotry finds no place in her composition, and the truth in her view throws its light into every apartment of the Christian edifice, like an oysterman's chandelier into his many booths. The simile is not the very best, but the best to be had at present. Mrs. Partington in court. I took my knitting work and went up into the gallery, said Mrs. Partington, the day after visiting one of the city courts. I went up into the gallery, and after I had digested my specs, I looked down into the room, but I couldn't see any courting going on. An old gentleman seemed to be asking a good many impertinent questions, just like some old folks, and people were sitting round making minuets of the conversation. I don't see how they made out what was said, for they all told different stories. How much easier it would be to get along if they were all made to tell the same story. What a sight of trouble it would save the lawyers. The case, as they called it, was given to the jury, but I couldn't see it, and a gentleman with a long pole was made to swear that he'd keep an eye on em and see that they didn't run away with it. By and by, in they come again, and then they said somebody was guilty of something, who had just said he was innocent, and didn't know nothing about it, no more than the little baby that never had subsistence. I come away soon afterwards, but I couldn't help thinking how trying it must be to sit there all day, shut out from the blessed air. This experience is a beautiful exhibit of judicial life. True enough, Mrs. Partington, how easy might be the determining of cases were but one side of the story told. But alas for perplexed jurymen, there are unfortunately two sides, and the brain is racked to judge between them. Conscience holding the light tremblingly, lest honor be compromised, and mercy pointing with raised finger to its fountain, as if endeavoring to draw attention from justice, who stands sword in hand to urge her claim to well and truly try, is the solemn duty fastened by an oath, and the commonwealth reposes in blessed security upon the broad responsibility of twelve honest men. God save the commonwealth. End of section 2